Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. One official in the Trump administration likes the idea of a preemptive strike against North Korea more than the others. We'll suss out the thinking of H.R. McMaster's. Winner's coldest days are here. A Canadian researcher tells us how turtles survive in frozen ponds. And Barack Obama vowed to close it, but time marches on. We'll mark 16 years of detentions at Guantanamo. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Things seem to be going swimmingly for North and South Korea. North is coming to the Olympics, and there's talk between the militaries. Most observers are breathing a sigh of relief. But advocates for a preemptive strike on North Korea are still out there. The venerable Edward Lutvak from the Center for Strategic and International Studies argued in foreign policy this week that it's time to bomb North Korea. Inside the Trump administration, the biggest advocate for a strike outside of Trump himself is National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, a military guy. Uri Friedman of The Atlantic digs into the U.S. National Security Advisor's thinking in a piece called The World According to H.R. McMaster's. Uri Friedman joins us. Nice to talk with you. Good to be with you, Jerome. Um, First of all, most military guys, it seems like, are usually the ones who are the most reluctant to start a shooting war between North and South Korea and the United States. Uh, why? How did H.R. McMaster's get to this point that he is the one who thinks that a strike against North Korea is uh, even a thing to think about? That was one of the big mysteries that I was trying to uncover in this piece because, you know, I've, I've heard McMaster speak for years. I've talked to former colleagues and they talk about how he has a real appreciation for how unpredictable war is. That, you know, you're not just, you don't just have plans in a defense department and you try to carry them out. You're up against a thinking adversary. They respond and war goes in ways you wouldn't expect. Not only that, he has a lot of combat experience. You know, one of the biggest and most famous ones is that he was a legendary tank commander during the Gulf War. And then he also helped craft counterinsurgency during the Iraq War. So I was trying to understand how does someone who has this much experience and this much appreciation for the unpredictability of war, why would they consider military action against North Korea? And what are the one thing, of the things, one of the things yeah. I didn't realize about him was he wrote his dissertation on um, mistakes political leaders made during the Vietnam War. That's right. The uh, dissertation and later a book was called Dereliction of Duty. And it was about how not only political leaders like McNamara, uh, you know, and JFK and Lyndon Johnson, but also military leaders, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, how they really um, botched the Vietnam War and weren't honest with themselves and the American public about what was going on. You know, they were kind of trying to suck up to political leadership. And so, yeah, he's thought about this for years and he has a real reputation as one of the military's leading intellectuals and visionaries on the future of war. So how has he come to really be the most vocal person in the Trump administration, other than maybe the president himself, about the need to use military action, if absolutely necessary, as a last resort, to stop North Korea from a very particular thing, which is being able to take a missile, it's a long-range missile, 
attach a warhead to it and be able to reach the United States. And North Korea is rapidly getting to that point. And what McMaster has said repeatedly on TV, in speeches I've attended, is we will not allow North Korea to get to the point where they have that capability, even if it requires military action. And so that is really the puzzle here. So why why would he feel this way uh, when other people, just to point out that there are counterarguments here, other people say, we, you know, the United States during the Cold War lived with the Soviet Union, who had many more nuclear weapons able to reach the United States. We've lived with China, who has that capability. Why can't we deter North Korea the way we can uh, all these other major nuclear powers? And one of the things he says about it is that uh, North Korea developing a long-range nuclear capability would be the most destabilizing development in the post-World War II world, period. That comment really stuck with me and kind of launched my research into his larger thinking because I was trying to understand, okay, so why is that the case? Because, I mean, I mean, anyone who is familiar with recent history uh, can think of a lot of other destabilizing developments since World War II, right? There was the genocide in Rwanda. There was the co- Soviet Union collapsing and the end of the Cold War. So why is he making that kind of statement? Um, one thing I found is that in looking back at his speeches and also um, things he said since becoming National Security Advisor, he often reference, references two two texts as kind of um, illustrative of the current moment we're living in. One is by these two scholars, Jakob Griegel and Wes Mitchell. And it describes a world, it's called, they wrote a book in 2016 called The Unquiet Frontier. They're actually both now in Trump's State Department as high-ranking officials. And they argue that we have these revisionist powers, primarily China and Russia, who are kind of testing America at the outer limits of its power. And they're trying to revise and potentially even collapse this international system that we created after World War II to kind of make a more stable world, and also a world that, frankly, is beneficial to U.S. interests. The second uh, article is an essay by a Canadian historian called Margaret McMillan. And she argues that the kind of great power rivalry we're seeing right now between Russia, China, and others is similar to the dynamics that preceded World War I. Uh, and that there is this kind of, uh, similar to the first um, book, is there's this effort to revise the international system. So what, what binds these two texts together is this real urgent sense that this international system that we created after World War II is really under serious strain and that the U.S. needs to kind of defend its interests and allies in ways that it didn't before because this great power competition is back. You know, I went to one speech McMaster gave where he he gave this line that I really found interesting, which is, you know, Geopolitics is back with a vengeance. Our holiday from history after the post-Cold War period is over. And I think North Korea fits into that worldview. Now, when somebody starts talking about geopolitics and the the United States controlling the whole world, uh, it gets a little uncomfortable, right? I mean, uh, doesn't the the United States, in theory, shouldn't want to control the whole world and defend every uh, every place down to the last man. Uh, this this is a little um, creepy. Yes, I think McMaster. Well, what McMaster would say is it's not that the U.S. wants to kind of be this like globe-spanning, you know, hegemon that only, that controls everything that goes on in the world. I think what he would say is that the United States has created this system that has helped keep the world stable. You know, he said in the past that the reason we haven't had great power conflict 
for the last 70 years is because of this system. So it's the United States, it's its allies in, you know, in Asia, in Europe, in the Middle East. And it's also the fact that we've created rules, right? When you, when, often when in D.C. circles, a lot of times among policymakers, people talk about a rules-based international order. What does that mean? That means that we have international law, that you can't do certain things in war. Uh, we have law, rules about how you trade with one another so that countries aren't using trade as almost like a bludgeon to hurt other countries. And so I think what he would argue is that it's not the U.S. trying to, you know, control the entire world, but it's creating a system that allows countries to get along relatively well. I mean, it's not like violence has disappeared, right? But that we haven't had these catastrophic wars that we had in the 19th and 20th centuries. Right. And I think that's what he would argue, and that that's worth defending and defending America's allies as part of that. Even if you would be starting a illegal war preemptively, you would well, defend. That, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is the real contradicting that I have to say, I, I really tried to explore here, but I could not, I frankly could not fully kind of suss out that contradiction. And I actually talked to a former colleague, John Nagel, who said, you know, I get what he's saying about geopolitics. I feel that way too. You know, Russia's rising, China's rising. We do have these uh, hostile powers in Iran and North Korea. And yet, what McMaster has been saying about the need potentially for preventive war is not in keeping at all with the man I know, with his thinking, with his, you know, responsibility he feels for preserving innocent life on this planet and security. Um, and so that is something that I haven't been able to fully understand. My, my sense of it, you know, one jab at this is that he feels that there are ways to potentially control control it from getting it out of control. Uh, and that also he feels that it, it'd be even harder and more destabilizing when North Korea has this nuclear capability and they're getting very close to it. And, and so if we try to use some degree of force to prevent them from getting a full nuclear arsenal, we can prevent a bad situation later, which is, for example, uh, North Korea saying we are going to threaten a U.S. city with nuclear weapons unless you, the United States, leave South Korea and abandon your ally. And then North Korea comes in and invades South Korea. He's mentioned this particular scenario. And so I think he maybe feels that there's a worse prospect of conflict if North Korea has capability than if they don't. Now, on the other hand, as I said earlier, McMaster knows war is unpredictable and can spiral out of control. So he could be starting the very thing he is trying to avoid. I'm talking with Uri Friedman of The Atlantic, and we're discussing his article, The World According to H.R. McMasters, which explores his ideas about uh, what's going on out there in the world and why a preemptive strike or a punch-in-the-nose strike, as people are calling it, uh, for North Korea would be a good idea. Um, you know, there's also the irony here that H.R. McMaster is someone who is working for Donald Trump. If ever there was a president who did not want to defend the post-World War II order of things, it would be Donald Trump. In Asia alone, uh, he, you know, wants to tear up trade agreements and uh, relationships and uh, dump on allies and uh, in Asia and Europe. Uh, how does this, how does his worldview jibe with, <laughs> with Donald Trump's? Yeah, I think there is a real, you know, they're really sharply at odds in, in some ways that are really remarkable for the fact that, that um, you know, national security advisors in the White House, 
advising one of the president's top security officials and foreign policy aides uh, is advising someone who really, in a lot of ways, has a diametrically opposed view of the world. So yeah, Donald Trump's nationalism, his questioning, uh, open questioning of the arrangements the United States has made with its allies, it, his withdrawal from free trade and lack of support for that, or at least uh, orthodoxy involving free trade, that is very different than what McMaster is, is saying in terms of we need to defend this at all costs and we need to defend our allies. I do think that they do. Sh- there is some overlap. Um, and one way I see the overlap is that both kind of envision this world's kind of rough and tumble, where it's much more competitive than it used to be, and where the U.S. Ha- has to kind of really doggedly pursue its interests. And I think that both of them share that. Um, it's not exactly a Hobbesian world where like life is brood- you know, brutish and short and uh, everyone is just vying for each other and there's no lawlessness. I think at least McMaster has a much more optimistic view of the world, but he still sees it as a, you know, an arena where people compete. And I will say one other thing, which is that you know, I was exploring H.R. McMaster's worldview and thinking about how the world works because he's been so vocal about North Korea and seems to be one of the people really thinking deeply about Trump administration policy on North Korea. But one of his former colleagues told me, you know, McMaster primarily sees his role as helping the president make difficult national security decisions, not being an independent voice for policy. So I think McMaster has these very different positions and and has been much more vocal about potential military options. But ultimately, he is trying to facilitate a decision-making process for the president. You know, the president, in the end of the day, is the boss, as, as Donald Trump will tell you himself. All right. So we just saw the Trump administration come out with this national security strategy that looks like it was influenced by Mr. McMaster and his philosophy sounds to jive with that pretty well. And Donald Trump was getting up on the same day and making a speech that, you know, was contradictory to it and, and uh, held lots of contradictions to, to the national security strategy. That, that's what we're seeing play out here. Yeah, I think I think there are, you know, when Donald Trump gave a speech on the national security strategy that was very scripted. I think when and and he generally speaking hewed to what McMaster and his team had done in the national security strategy. I think um when he's more off script, he his instincts are just not in that direction. Uh he there are again overlap in other things too, like Iran for example. Um uh, both McMaster and Trump agree that Iran is a threat. But I think uh, they come at it from different perspectives. So, for example, the, Iran is discussed a lot in the national security strategy. I think for Donald Trump, it's like an affront to him that the Obama administration made such a horrible deal with Iran. Um, and so it's, it's more about deal making and it's also about the threat from I think Donald Trump has often lumped the Iranian leadership in with extreme extremist views uh, from you know fringe groups in Islam that are also uh, that are also uh, you know informing the ideology of terrorist groups. So he has lumped that together, and for him, he cares a lot about terrorism. I think for uh, McMaster, he sees it more in the way I described earlier, which is Iran is trying to revise the international system in the Middle East, in particular, and challenge U.S. power. So they're coming at it from different perspectives, but agreeing on the threat. Same thing with North Korea. I think McMaster sees this as a destabilizing, systemic threat to the international system that he wants to preserve. I think Donald Trump has a much more primal view of this, which is I don't want North Korea to be able to threaten Americans. And I feel that the the uh, you know, the United States is, 
usually invulnerable because we're on the, in the northern hemi- you know we're in the western hemisphere we're away from all these threats but now with an ICBM that can carry a nuclear weapon we're exposed and I don't want to expose Americans to it so I think that it's a, it's a much more it's not as much of a uh, a theory based on the international system as it is based on protecting the homeland and also we shouldn't discount the fact that this is also about personality you know Donald Trump likes to show himself as a tough guy uh, and he's being tested by Kim Jong Un who also likes to show himself as a tough guy and so again they're coming at it from different perspectives, but kind of agreeing on certain threats to U.S. national security. And I think that was reflected to a degree in the national security strategy. Uri Friedman is the author of The World According to H.R. McMaster's. It's in the current issue of The Atlantic. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about where our national security advisor's head is at. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Coming up after the break, it's been really cold out, and I am going to talk with a Canadian researcher about how turtles stay alive in the winter. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's the coldest days of the winter around here, and when things get cold, you've got to wonder how anything stays alive outside. Take turtles, for instance. How do they just camp out at the bottom of a pond all winter? I recently discovered that part of the answer lies in butt breathing. That's right, butt breathing. Jacqueline Litzkis is a researcher, and she figures out what turtles do out there in the middle of winter. She's a professor of biology at Laurentine University in Sudbury, Ontario. And I read her article in the conversation called The Secret to Turtle Hibernation, Butt Breathing. Thanks for joining us, Jackie. I'm happy to be here. Um, First of all, before we get to the butt breathing, um, (laughs) turtles do something that we can hardly imagine. They are able to, um, you know, they're not warm-blooded. They they can slow down their metabolism to almost zip. Mm -hmm. How do they do that? So because they're ectotherms, so animals that rely on the external environment, for their body temperature, and then there's this relationship between body temperature and metabolism. So just because they're cold in a cold environment, then their metabolism is also slowed down. It's just, it's a direct relationship between temperature and metabolism, which is totally different than for us, which are endotherms, we generate our own body heat. And so our body temperature is fairly constant at all times, assuming we're healthy. So for a turtle, it's different. Their body temperature is just mimicking that of the environment that they're in. And so cold temperature means slow metabolism, means low energy requirements. All right. So how low do they go? How much energy do they lose? Are their hearts beating down there? Their hearts are beating, but very slowly. Everything is happening just at a really slow pace. Now, they can't, for most turtles, they cannot go below freezing temperatures. So they can't go below zero degrees Celsius. They can't handle having any kind of ice in their bodies. Most turtles, there's box turtles, which are actually able to do that to a limited extent. But most adult turtles can't do that. So they have to find a place to hibernate that's going to keep their body temperature above that that dangerous zone of zero degrees Celsius. So they can hang out at like one degree Celsius or two degrees Celsius and be okay for extended periods of time. Um, How do turtles breathe in the first place? 
So they do have lungs, like they breathe, you know, normally they take in oxygen from the air and then um, and they exchange the gases with their lungs, just like normal, except but, when it's winter time. Uh, right? do, they, do they use their legs when they're breathing? I heard they use their legs. Right. So one of the things that's really unusual about turtles is, right, they have a shell. It's like the, you know, the diagnostic feature. Everybody knows a turtle by looking at the shell. And that shell is actually their modified rib cage. So, you know, when we inhale and exhale, you know, we, we take a big breath and our rib cage expands and the diaphragm pushes up on our lungs and that helps to pump the air in our lungs. Well, turtles can't do that because their rib cage is now this fixed feature, right, with this, with, which is their shell. So they can actually, to some degree, pump their legs to help pump the air that would go in and out of their lungs. Which is kind of like butt breathing already, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and then the the butt breathing itself in this slowed down state is that the only time turtles are butt breathing, or are they butt breathing all the time? Um, actually, you know what? That's a really good question, and I and I don't know the answer for sure whether they they still exchange oxygen across their butt or cloacal surface during warmer temperatures. I imagine they might a little bit, but I do know that in winter time. They have to use that method because there is a cap of ice over top of the pond, so they can't come up and get a breath of air and use their lungs. So they have to be doing something else for that, you know, six-month period that they can't come up and get a breath of air because of the ice presence. All right. And um, does it provide a lot of their oxygen, this butt breathing? It probably provides the majority of their oxygen during that cold winter time period. Um, they don't need a lot of oxygen because they're really cold and because their metabolism is really slow, their requirements for oxygen and energy are super limited. Like they don't need that much. So they only need to pick up a little bit of oxygen to sustain body functions. In fact, some of them switch to a metabolism that doesn't even use oxygen at all. And that's because they're so cold, they can pull that off. We're talking about how turtles manage to stay alive in the winter with Jackie Litzkis. She researches what turtles do out there in the middle of winter. She's a professor of biology at uh, Laurentine University in Sudbury, Ontario. And I read her article about the secret to turtle hibernation, butt breathing, in the conversation. And I wanted to ask uh, um, a question about um, uh what do, are turtles moving down there under the ice? Because it would seem like some of them, and we saw some YouTube videos of turtles swimming around under the ice. And this would seem to mean that they are uh, using up a lot of oxygen and probably doing more than just butt breathing. How, how do they, how do they um, are they winding down at that point? Uh, what's going on there? Yeah, so that's actually an amazing question, and it's something that we were particularly interested in. Much of the work that's been done on how turtles handle cold temperatures and winter conditions was laboratory-based work. So in my research group, we wanted to understand what the turtles are doing actually in the wild. So we attached little radio transmitters to the turtle shells, and we also attached temperature data loggers, which allowed us to monitor movements of turtles during winter and also what temperatures they're using during winter. And so we would radio track them with our antenna and our receiver to their positions under the ice, and we would do that on a weekly basis or so or every couple of weeks. And we found that some of them actually are moving under the ice in the cold, cold water. And and one turtle, in fact, it was a, a the wood turtle, which lives in riverine conditions, so there's actually a flowing, flowing water there. The turtle moved about 12 meters against the current from one radio location date to the next, which is amazing to move that far when the animal was essentially at 
just above zero degrees Celsius and presumably not having access to a, a lot of oxygen, although there was flowing water there. So perhaps in that case, the turtle could pick up a little bit more oxygen because the water wasn't stagnant. It was flowing water. But we were amazed. We didn't think they could move that much. Now, um, one of the things, that. yeah, because it, it seems like if you sh- if you shut down, I read it described as being like you've got a gigantic muscle cramp. And, they, mm-hmm. they, and the turtles come out in the springtime and they just lay in the sun to, to relieve the muscle cramp so they can move again. Is that, is that accurate? So that, that, that happens for the turtles that switch to that kind of metabolism not using oxygen, so the anaerobic metabolism turtles, because anaerobic metabolism, one of the products that's produced in that pathway is acid, lactic acid, just like the acid that gives you a muscle cramp after you exercise vigorously because your body switches to anaerobic metabolism also when you do that kind of vigorous work. So for the turtles that switch to that anaerobic pathway, they're the, they are the ones that have that acid buildup. And so those are the guys that are desperate to get out, bask, warm up, because when they warm up, they can you know, get metabolism up and running again to get rid of those acid byproducts. But the wood, wood turtle that's swimming 12 meters upstream is not that guy. No, he's not that guy. He's, he's sticking to his anaerobic pathways. Right. And um, uh, like the turtles I saw on YouTube, they were uh, alligator turtles, I believe. And they were big and they were under the ice and moving. It's alligator snapping turtles, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I mean, when we're doing our work here in Ontario where, you know, there's an ice cap on the pond and there's also a bunch of snow and stuff. So we actually can't visualize the turtles. We can't see what they're doing under the ice. We can only measure the distance they've moved by doing our radio telemetry work. So I can't actually see them walking around um, because of the, the snow cover, right? Um, does that mean, um, how, are there other turtles that are moving around other than the wood turtle that went 12 meters? Yeah, so we, we've had other, we've recorded other movements of a couple of meters, um, nothing as extensive as that wood turtle, but we do find that they move during the winter time. There's a little bit of movement happening for sure. All right. That's. Uh, do they dig down in the mud then? I mean, do they still want to get down in it? So there's some actual um, debate about that. Some people think, for example, painted turtles, which is a pretty common species. Um, some researchers are pretty confident that the turtles uh, bury down into the mud substrate at the bottom of the pond, and other researchers suggest that the turtles are just resting on the surface of the mud and not burying down. And it, again, it, it's hard to visualize and it's hard to know what's happening in nature. But in my mind, I think it would be really tough for the turtle to actually bury down into the substrate because then, honestly, they're cloacas. They're, they wouldn't be able to do their butt breathing because then their cloacas would be buried <laughs> in that substrate as well. So, you know, that's a hypothesis on my part that I don't think that they're doing that. It's hard to observe it in nature, but I think that they'd be really compromised if they did that. It sounds like there are a lot of things we don't know about what happens to turtles in ponds when in the winter wild, comes. For sure, yep. Uh, it's just so. This is why you're out there with how many researchers uh, do you work with? How many people and students and things? Well, so I've had uh, I guess three or four graduate students who have um, who have gone out and radio tracked turtles over the winter to figure out what's happening. Yeah, it's something I am. We are really interested in, especially because for turtles up here in northern environments, you know, half their life at least is spent dealing with these conditions. We can't just do our research in the fair weather summer season. We have to figure out what's happening for the other half of their lives, too, if we truly want to understand their ecology, their biology, and even, you know, conservation issues, because 
hibernation sites are a, a piece of critical habitat. That's a really important thing to understand if you want to protect those populations. And in general, turtles are in big trouble across the globe. So understanding what they're doing for half their life is really important. Does um, does their being in hibernation for half their life, does that extend their life at all? Because uh, turtles are already incredibly long-lived. But uh, is that possible? But that's also a really good question. That's the um, kind of thing my dad will ask me and stuff, too, is like, you know, if if they're in this sort of suspended animation for half their lives, is that why they live for so long? And I think that there's there's some relationship to that to some degree, and that, that goes back to them being ectotherms, and being an ectotherm is sort of a cheaper way to live compared to an endotherm, like a mammal, like a human. So I think there's there's some truth to that, but I... I I don't want to make any definitive statements about it. And what about different varieties of turtles? Are there some that are like super long-distance champions who can go the whole six months and others that don't want to do that? Yeah, there are. So at least based on the laboratory studies that have been done, it's been found that painted turtles and the common snapping turtle are really good at handling being submerged at cold temperatures for really long periods of time, like over 100 days in the laboratory. They can handle that and survive and be okay at the end of it. And other species that have been tested in the lab are not very good at it. They can't do it for that same extended period of time. So there's, there is variation among the species and their ability to handle these long uh, winter conditions. Well, it's amazing stuff. And I'm glad you're out there in the freezing cold doing <laughs> turtle research. Thank you. <laughs> Jacqueline Litgis researches what turtles do out there in the middle of the winter. She is a professor of biology at Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario. Her article on the Conversation website is The Secret to Turtle Hibernation Butt Breathing. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you for having me. Coming up after the break, Barack Obama vowed to close it, but time marches on. We'll mark 16 years of detentions at Guantanamo. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Tomorrow marks the 16th anniversary of the opening of the Guantanamo Bay Detention Facility. You might have forgotten a little bit about Guantanamo, but it's still there, and there are 41 prisoners uh, still there in the Guantanamo Bay Detention Facility. And every year, groups, uh, people opposed to the detention center, assemble in Washington and uh, protest. And Andy Worthington has been doing this for a number of years. And he is the author of the Guantanamo Files, Stories of the 774 Detainees in America's Illegal Prison. And he's the co-founder of Close Guantanamo as well. And he's on the line with us. Thanks for joining us, Andy Worthington. Well, thank you, Jerome. Very nice to um, have your interest in this topic. 
it was such a central thing during the Obama years and during the George W. Bush years. Now we've kind of moved into another political zone where the president, you know, said came in office saying he wanted to expand Guantanamo. And the detention center seems really out there, forgotten, and and kind of a like, like it's a hopeless quest to close close Guantanamo here. Obviously, the issue under George W. Bush was that um, he set up this place, which you know co- contravenes really the rules and the laws by which Americans understand that things should be done. So people are being were initially held there without any rights whatsoever, and fundamentally. Um, to a great degree still are really um, there the most of the men still held there are held indefinitely without charge or trial and clearly um, you know that was wrong and eventually people were starting to be a bit upset about it Obama of course one of the things that uh, that appealed to um, people was that he promised to close the prison and and when he became president he almost immediately issued an executive order saying that he would close it within a year um, and of course it's a great shame that he didn't close it because we've ended up with Trump who said he wanted to expand it. Now he hasn't been able to do that. And that uh, I would suggest is not because he doesn't want to, but because his advisors have told him that there is no purpose to Guantanamo, that it's a failed experiment, that um, it was only set up to hold people beyond the reach of the US courts so that, frankly, they could be dealt with in ways that w- wouldn't have been acceptable. If you have people accused of terrorism, then they should be prosecuted in federal courts. I, I noticed that um, General Mattis went to Guantanamo Bay and visited the facility. Yes, he did. I think he was the first defense secretary to do that since Donald Rumsfeld. Um, I haven't seen what anything that's come out of that to um, to indicate you know, what what he's thinking about it. I know in the past he has suggested that um, that basically he doesn't have a problem with prisoners of war being held. I'm not sure whether he fully appreciates the fact that the men at Guantanamo are not held as prisoners of war. They're still held as prisoners without rights who can only be released at the whim of the president. And I think what's happened under Trump is that he shut the door on Guantanamo in the sense that although no one else knew he was coming there, he's not letting anyone go either. And I think this is really what we've got one year after uh, of of Trump's presidency, we can see Guantanamo has been sealed shut. He has no intention under any circumstances of releasing anybody. He's wound down the officials who previously dealt with the release of prisoners under President Obama and who also significantly, I think, were, you know, monitoring what happened to prisoners after they were released. And I think he's basically let the whole thing go. Um, And that's worrying both in terms of the bigger picture of Guantanamo, but also he has five men there who were approved for release by high-level review processes, government review processes established under President Obama. And he again seems to be, you know, showing complete contempt for those processes um, and has no interest in, in releasing these men. Now, it's a third of the men who are still at Guantanamo are considered the high-value detainees. And um, I noticed they're Attorneys are going to get a chance to visit uh, the camp that they're in, Camp 7, a a secret detention facility, and maybe see where they're at for the first time. Right, which is extraordinary. I mean, they have been at Guantanamo for over 11 years. 
Um, and yet this, you know, this horrendous secrecy has, has surrounded them all this time. And for one reason only, to be honest, Jerome, and that's because these men were all held in CIA black sites. They were all tortured. And the United States government is still to this day doing all it can to um, hide and suppress uh, the evidence of their torture, with the result that the military commission trials that some of these men are facing um, are just um, caught in this endless pre-trial process where, you know, it appears to be going around in circles because, of course, the men defending them are trying to get the story of what happened to them exposed because without it there can't be a fair trial, whereas the government's prosecutors are trying to keep the evidence of their torture hidden. Um, So it's a pretty disgraceful situation. I mean, it's good to hear them, but, you know, yet again, another kind of terrible insight into the whole history of this place. One of the things that I've seen in the news about uh, Guantanamo was a flap over some of the art that has been exhibited by some of the uh, people who are detained there. This was a story that that emerged in the fall when, um, I mean, it was prompted because there's a very interesting display of um, prisoner artwork. The military somehow decided that they were upset about prisoner artwork being for show um, and then responded in a very heavy-handed manner by suggesting that they they were going to destroy prisoners' artwork. Um, And I think what's upsetting about this is that when you look back over the 16 years of Guantanamo's history, it began with a concerted effort to dehumanize these people. Eventually, over the years, they started to, in, in some little ways, begin to treat the men held there as human beings. And one of the ways that they did this was that um, instead of locking them down permanently, they started to allow those prisoners who they regarded as being better behaved to undertake certain classes. And one of the classes that they were allowed to take was art classes. And they actually, you know, put out quite a lot of information um, promoting what the prisoners had been doing and, and regarding it as a success. So suddenly to have had this turnaround, I think, was very disappointing. And it certainly was picked up a lot in the media in the United States, who, where I think people were, were really empathizing with the prisoners, which presumably is exactly what the military didn't want. I'm talking with Andy Worthington. He's the co-founder of the organization Close Guantanamo. He is bearing down on a event in Washington that will mark the 16th anniversary of the opening of the Guantanamo Bay Detention Facility. We remember the hunger strikes that were going on amongst some of the uh, detainees. Do, does that kind of thing still go on? That, Jerome, was another one of the issues where last year... I think some news that came out of Guantanamo managed to attract the attention of people. Because, of course, with Trump as president, we've basically got a situation where every day everybody's waiting to see what what kind of nonsense he's going to tweet. And, um, you know, and that kind of thing is dominating the news. Some of the dreadful policies that have taken place throughout the year are dominating things to such an extent that a long established injustice like Guantanamo really isn't um, getting much attention at all. So one of the things that happened in the in the fall was that um, prisoners who have been on hunger strike throughout the president, the Trump presidency, so people who've been on hunger strike for many years, told their lawyers that there had been a policy change that they had noticed in September, and that instead of there being efforts to feed them, to force feed them, um, which was what the situation had previously been, Um, They complained that they were very fundamentally being neglected by the medical authorities. 
and their fear was that the situation was such that um, the plan was to get them to give up their hunger strikes by by making it um, uncomfortable for them because they weren't being monitored. But the fe- their fear was that they would suffer um, organ damage while not being properly looked after. And unfortunately, the story rather disappeared after this had first been reported because the lawyers for the prisoners then submitted an emergency motion to the U.S. courts. Um, that emergency motion was... Um, was dealt with by the U.S. government in a they, – they basically dragged their heels over responding and then claimed that the prisoners were not telling the truth. And the stories rather fizzled out. But from what I understand, um, you know, the, 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 these worries are, are still very much alive. Um, I can only hope that because it got noticed and because – the lawyers intervened, then maybe that's changed the mind of the U.S. authorities. But I thought it was another insight into possibly how elements of the Trump administration are trying to be tougher um, on the, the remaining prisoners in Guantanamo. Or if not, then it's just another insight into the fundamental mundane but rather horrible everyday life of the prison. Andy, you co-founded uh, the organization Close Guantanamo. It's at closeguantanamo.org. And you did it with uh, Tom Wilner, who is a top attorney in Washington and defended Guantanamo prisoners. Uh, is there any legal uh, case that uh, would change the equation here? There are going to be some challenges this year on the basis of whether Trump can just close the prison. It's nearly 10 years ago now, actually, that, that the prisoners were were granted constitutionally guaranteed habeas corpus rights by the Supreme Court. And, um, and that led to a brief period where the law actually um, had some say at Guantanamo and several dozen prisoners were released because the judges looked at their cases and told the government that they had failed to make a case that these men were involved in any way with al-Qaeda or the Taliban. Um, and then appeals court judges, for nakedly ideological reasons, changed the rules and, um, and told the lower court judges that they must presume that everything the government came up with was accurate. And since then, no prisoner has won the habeas corpus petition. And that's rather been left hanging there. Um, and I'm hoping that there will be a challenge on these grounds this year as well. But, you know, it's very difficult because Guantanamo was set up through the authorization for use of military force, which was passed by Congress the week after the 9-11 attacks, which gave the president the right to pursue and imprison anyone that he thought was associated with 9-11, al-Qaeda, the Taliban. The Supreme Court, you know, several years later, and this is, you know, back in 2004 now, said yes, um, these men can be held until the end of hostilities, basically setting up a kind of parallel version of the Geneva Conventions. And none of this has ever really fundamentally been challenged. So at, at some uncomfortably casual level, if the president doesn't want to do anything, he doesn't have to do anything. And actually challenging it has proven really difficult. And it's what happened under Obama when he was feeling the political heat or thought that it was going to be too difficult you know, because he moved slowly on Guantanamo throughout his presidency. And when the Republicans massed against him, then he had this tendency to sit on his hands. And he could do that because the prison has its own rationale because of these, you know, terrible decisions that were taken in 2001 and that were then um, endorsed by the Supreme Court in 2004. 
You know, Andy, it's been a long time, uh, 16 years of Guantanamo. And it's when you think, go and think back, uh, it's before the era of drone strikes, right? I, this was an era that uh, where they were detaining people, uh, which is something they would not do these days, probably. They would, if they find somebody who is out there and they think is in Al-Qaeda, they don't even bother to detain them. They hit them with a drone strike. This is almost well, like right. an antiquated yeah. um, problem in a way. Well, I think, you know, the bigger picture is that, you know, there were there were assassinations um, before 9-11. And in the 90s, that became a rather muddy issue. So at the time of the post 9-11 approach, that was why that was part of the reason that they decided that they were going to detain people. You know, they were they were taking people out in predator missile strikes by about 2002. And of course, drones have since come in. And the combination of uh, the inevitable difficulties that they got into by, you know, detaining people um, in in a global network of black sites and subjecting them to torture, which was such an awful idea, has, of course, you know, made drones look so much more attractive. But the problem with, with drones is twofold. Firstly, that um, I don't think that it's been demonstrated um, in terms of international legal norms that, that this is acceptable behavior. And secondly, um, most of what seems to be happening is creating more enemies rather than less, because um, unfortunately, you know, we were told under Obama that he receives this great intelligence that people he's taking out are the right people. But I think what we actually find is that, um, you know, as with rounding people up to Guantanamo, the intelligence is really not that good. And what's happening is that repeatedly civilians are being killed, creating more enemies than existed before. So I think it's a pretty terrible situation. But yes, Guantanamo fits in as this kind of um, antiquated system, if you like, somewhere that is a legacy issue that we've got stuck on, um, you know, because it's not something that, um, that that Trump has been able to add to, despite him thinking that that's, you know, that that would be a good idea. Now, I know that um, you've got a poster campaign, the uh, a Gitmo clock that you're uh, talking about at the org website. Um, how are you counting uh quantifying the the gitmo clock there we actually had did run a, a, a the gitmo clock before when we were counting down to the end of obama's presidency and urging him to close the prison and i think you know everybody who was working on that front managed to contribute a small amount to to putting pressure on an administration that was at least able to recognize um what the issues were um now under trump you know with him showing no signs of any kind of understanding of things um, I, uh, we kind of thought it was a good idea to show how long the prison's been open. And I think that's what I've been feeling, that 16 years is such an enormous amount of time. You know, to be holding people without charge or trial, to have some pretense, even at some level, that they're connected with some war that isn't over, is really feeding into that narrative that the Bush administration came up with to say that this war on terror was going to last for generations that maybe it was going to last forever. And if that's the case, then no one's ever going to get released. And I think, you know, most decent law-abiding Americans would recognize that there's a problem with this narrative. Um, so 16 years, you know, I, I have an, a son who just turned 18. I mean, he was two when Guantanamo opened. Um, there were teenagers in America, you know, in, in large numbers who 
were born after the prison opened. They don't know anything other than this Guantanamo war, permanent Guantanamo, permanent war on terror world. So the clock, um, we've revived the clock and it's now counting how many days the prison has been open. And people can go to it. It's at um, gitmoclock.com and that's spelled G-T-M-O uh, clock. So those are the, you know, the letters the military uses for Gitmo, gitmoclock.com. And, um, and on January the 11th, the 16th anniversary of the opening of the prison, it will be 5,845 days that the prison uh, will have been open. And um, I, I'm hoping that people will reflect on just quite how long that is. And, um, you know, we'll realize that, that something is fundamentally wrong here. And if they want to get involved, then um, we have a poster for Thursday on the website, on the Close Guantanamo website, which they can print off and take a photo with. And at any time throughout the year, they can print off from the Gitmo clock page because it counts the number of days, hours, minutes and seconds that Guantanamo has been open. And if you print it, it will show you exactly how long it is at the time that you print it. And we're just hoping that um, people across the United States and around the world will um, continue to stand up and to try to tell President Trump that, you know, the place must be closed. Um, it's really far, far too long that this terrible experiment has been open and um, that it must be shut for good. Andy Worthington is the co-founder of CloseGuantanamo.org, and he's also the author of The Guantanamo Files, The Stories of the 774 Detainees in America's Illegal Prison. And uh, you can check out his website at andyworthington.co.uk, and uh, you can see what he's been writing about on Guantanamo there as well. Thanks a lot for joining us, Andy Worthington, on the right before the 16th anniversary of the opening of the Guantanamo Bay Detention Facility. Thank you very much, Jerome. It's been great talking to you. Thanks. I recently picked up a backpack, a cause gear backpack. It's different than a lot of backpacks. It's made by people who have been recently freed from slavery in India. And we are going to talk with cause gear about their efforts to alleviate poverty and help people who are freed from slavery tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us for our global activism series. Also, Worldview is coming to you. Join us next Thursday at January 18th at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs for a conversation on how advances in artificial intelligence may change the relationship between humans and machines. You can get tickets and information at wbez.org slash events. We'd love to see you there and engage with the audience on the topic of artificial intelligence. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering and Daniel Musisi for curating our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.